Well, if you want to start somewhere in your Bible this morning, you can start in Exodus chapter 20. I invite you to open there if you have a Bible and um, turn to Exodus 20. We'll be there uh, briefly, but that's not where we're going to end. We'll head over to Matthew and spend most of our time in Matthew this morning. As you know, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus, and we come now to the Ten Commandments, these wonderful and important commandments that God gave to Israel and set up, in a sense, their whole system of life contained there in the Ten Commandments and serving as the door into the rest of the law. You may be familiar with the name Margaret Sanger. She was the founder of Planned Parenthood, a eugenicist, and she despised Theodore Roosevelt. She described him as a holdover from the old Christian religion and considered him to be an obstacle to her revolutionary program, which called for no gods and no masters. She called him a disgraceful blight upon any modern scientific nation's intent to advance, end quote. Theodore Roosevelt made a bold statement about morality as he was watching some of the new abortion unfold within the United States. He stated, those who, there are those who believe that a new modernity demands a new morality. What they fail to consider is the harsh reality that there is no such thing as a new morality. There is only one morality. All else is immorality. There is only true Christian ethics over against which stands the whole of paganism. End quote. Roosevelt's statement is insightful, but requires some consideration. It's really a consideration that we all have to reckon with as we consider what is right and what is wrong, what is moral and what is amoral. We have to come to some conclusion about what governs our decisions, how we live, what's right and what's wrong. We also have to ask the question, broadly speaking, is there anything in our life, any area that our life touches that is amoral, that has no reckoning with morality whatsoever? We have to answer all of these questions as we figure out how to live in this life. Jesus applies morality to even the eating and clothing that we wear when he says, do not be anxious for these things. And in such a statement, he really proves to us that everything that we touch in life has some level of morality to it, at least in how we interact with it. But what is that morality to be governed by? What is the whole of our life to be governed by? As we come to Exodus 20, we have the Ten Commandments, which have often been proposed to be the very bedrock upon which we are to build our lives of what's moral and what's immoral. They've long been regarded as the cornerstone of morality. And they do capture for us in a succinct way an expectation for what is right and wrong. In Ten Commandments, you can isolate that which is right and wrong. 
But we have to remember that as these commandments were given, they were given to the nation of Israel as part of a covenant where these commandments would in a sense be a summary of what is going to follow in the next chapters of Exodus and the next books of the Bible. In a sense, they would be the gateway into the whole legal code that would define how God expected his nation of Israel to live, the same nation that he rescued out of Egypt. You probably know these commandments. You've heard them, even if you can't recite them. You are likely familiar with them, but let me read them for you to refresh your memory. Exodus 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These are the Ten Commandments. Let's pray. Father, we have read your word, and we ask that you would once again come and help us to understand it. Lord, these are holy words, and we need to live by them, we know, but we also need your help to live by them and to know how to do that. So come and help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. These commandments are so important that they receive a huge emphasis in the law. Again, they are the front door into the rest of the code that's given to Israel that you find in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And as you go into the rest of Exodus and the rest of the books of the Torah, you come across other laws that are important as well. The whole of the code of Moses is what God expected Israel to live by. And it included laws about sacrifices and clothing and food and diseases and sexual practices, slavery, punishments for crimes committed, the priesthood, and plus much more. 
And from Exodus to Deuteronomy, you have instruction after instruction about how Israel was to live. And the Ten Commandments, in a sense, encapsulate those commandments and prepare for the rest of the law. Now, how you approach these Ten Commandments is very important. A lot of people have different opinions about that. I had a conversation with my kids the other night and asked them the question, should we keep the Ten Commandments exactly as they are written? And they looked at me like I was asking them some trick question. And they slowly, hesitatingly said, yes. And I quoted for them Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And so I followed up with the question, if you honor your father and mother, should you expect that you will get to live in the land of Israel? For a long, long time. And then one of my kids thinks about this and says, Jesus kind of changes it, doesn't he? And that's exactly the point. When we come to the Ten Commandments and the law of the Old Testament, we can't now come to them without also coming to Jesus. And that's the goal this morning that I have for us, that as we come to study the Ten Commandments, we have to understand them through Jesus. The Ten Commandments have to be hitched up to Jesus in order to rightly understand them. They're easy to understand in one sense on their own. It doesn't take very much thought to understand what do not murder means, do not commit adultery, or even keeping the Sabbath, that if you understand what the Sabbath is and what it means to keep it holy, then you can understand what it means. And yet, if you preach these commandments without also preaching Christ, you fail to preach them for the very purpose for which they've been given. And I would be unfaithful to my duty. If I were to preach these isolated from Jesus Christ, it would be like we're living in a world of bacteria and pretending that there are no antibiotics that exist. Or if I preach these without preaching Christ, it would be like living in a world with electricity, but pretending no power tools exist. We have to connect these to Jesus. And we have to do this because Jesus himself says in Matthew 5.17, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. There's a lot of confusion about how the law and the believer relate together. It's a broad topic with much ink that's been spilled on it, and I don't intend to unpack that for us this morning, but if I were to remain at somewhat of a popular level, we can realize there are necessary reasons we need to dig into this subject. People take different perspectives on their relationship to the law. Some people want to take the Ten Commandments and put them in front of schools and in courthouses, in capital buildings, in front of churches, and in front of homes. Some people try to live their lives by the Ten Commandments and basically think that's good enough, that that is their morality, and if they don't murder and don't steal and don't commit adultery, they're a good person, and they can live with just the Ten Commandments, and you kind of can do away with the New Testament and the rest of the Bible. You just need this. Some people on the other side of the spectrum think 
that the Ten Commandments and the law of the Old Testament is completely irrelevant to the Christian believer. That you can basically just toss it out. You can take those first 39 books of the Bible and dump them in the garbage. They could live without the Old Testament. Some people think that if they have Jesus and the forgiveness of sins, then basically they can live their lives however they want. They've got that golden ticket to get into heaven, and they're all set. And so what need do they have for the Ten Commandments? They got their ticket punched. So how should we think about this? Well, to bring some clarity to it, let's look at Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 20, is probably the most important text in the Gospels on the law. Matthew, as a gospel, was written to show that Jesus of Nazareth is the Jewish Messiah, who also is the king of the whole world. The Gospel of Matthew begins with the birth of Jesus, and it presents him as the king of the Jews. And at the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, it ends with the resurrected Jesus commissioning his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It begins with Jesus as king of the Jews, and it ends with Jesus as king of the Jews, requiring disciples of all nations to come to him. So by virtue of its very purpose, this gospel connects Jesus both to Jews who were required to keep the law as well as Gentiles who are regarded as lawless. And so this gospel is a help to us by the very purpose for which it was written. And as we spend the rest of our time looking at Matthew, there are several things that I hope you will see. I hope that as you look at Matthew with me, that you will see that if you seek to understand the law without Jesus, then you will fail to understand the law rightly. I also hope that you will see by looking at Matthew that Jesus doesn't just come to point us back to the law or the Ten Commandments and leave us there as if he just says, go keep those commandments and you need nothing else. That's not the point he ever makes. I also hope that you will see that Jesus came to be the one who we must listen to and obey. He sends at the end of the gospel to teach all of the nations to observe all that I have commanded you. I also hope that you'll see that Jesus, in his teaching, transforms the law without distorting it. He deepens it without diluting it. And he clarifies it without simplifying our understanding of the Mosaic law. In a word, he fulfills it. He takes the law that we read about in the Old Testament and he aims it directly for our hearts as he deepens it and transforms it and clarifies it. He also shows that he's the object of the law and that he's the Lord of the law. To give you an example for how Jesus relates to the law of Moses, the law of the Old Testament, consider the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment is in Exodus 20, verse 8, and it is this, that we are to remember to keep the Sabbath day 
to keep it holy. As you read the Gospels, if you've read them before, you know Jesus gets into lots of spats with the religious leaders about the Sabbath. On almost every page, it seems like, oh, here's a new controversy, and it's about the Sabbath again. It's kind of the way it works. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus gets into another argument with the religious leaders of the day who see Jesus and his disciples walking through a grain field, and his disciples are plucking heads of grain and eating it on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders think that's unlawful. They consider it to be work on the Sabbath. And so they criticize Jesus for this and ask him why he is allowing his disciples to do that which is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus gives several responses to that by referring to the Old Testament, but the culmination of his response is this. In Matthew 12, verse 8, he gives himself a title. Jesus refers to himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. You want to know how Jesus relates to the law? He views himself as Lord of it, master of it. To say that he is Lord of the Sabbath means, as Matthew Henry puts it, that law, as all the rest, is put into the hand of Christ to be altered, enforced, or dispensed with as he sees good. It was by the Son that God made the world, and by him he instituted the Sabbath. By him he gave the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, and as mediator he is entrusted to make what changes he thought fit. And particularly, as being Lord of the Sabbath, he was authorized to make such an alteration of that day. Jesus has prerogative over the law by virtue that he is the master of the law. As we come to Matthew and lead, up, lead our way up to Matthew chapter 5, which is where we'll end, we need to kind of get a running start and see Jesus in the context of Matthew. Matthew's gospel is unique from the other gospels. All of them are unique, but Matthew comes at the life of Jesus with a slightly different tone to it. Mark starts off with Jesus on the go, just immediately gets into Jesus' ministry. He is a man of action, and Jesus is doing miracles right from the start. No lengthy teaching interrupts Mark's gospel until later in the gospel. Luke has a lengthy account of Jesus' birth narrative. John is unique in his theological prologue and focuses on Jesus as God the Son and then focuses on miracles like turning water into wine. Matthew's focus is on Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so the very way he begins the gospel in Matthew 1 verse 1 is insightful for what his point is. Matthew 1 verse 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He begins with identifying Jesus as the son of David, which means that he is the Jewish king, and also the son of Abraham, meaning that he is the fulfillment of the promise that God has made. And so he's showing that the whole Old Testament is moving towards Jesus, and he kind of confirms that when Matthew writes in 117, after giving a genealogy leading up to Christ, that all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. 
He's leading us from showing the whole history of the Old Testament, from Abraham to David to the deportation to Christ, is all leading to Christ. He's the culmination of it. It shows not only a historical progression, but a fulfillment or completion that is found in Christ. All the Old Testament is leading toward Him. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. And then Matthew gets into the birth of Jesus. Well, you know that story. It's the Christmas story. But as he tells that story about Jesus' birth, he punctuates it with this refrain by saying, quote, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. He's referring to Old Testament prophets and saying that Jesus' coming is a fulfillment of that. And he quotes in chapter 1, verses 22 through 23 from Isaiah, in chapter 2, verse 15 from Hosea, 2.17 from Jeremiah, and then he wraps up the birth story in verse 23 by this, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets, plural, might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. He doesn't even refer to a, a specific text. He doesn't quote something from the Old Testament there. He just sums up basically all of the prophets are saying that the Christ is going to be someone who is kind of obscure. And then he's saying that all of the prophets are being fulfilled in Christ. It's not that hard to understand what it means to say that Jesus fulfills the prophets. If a prophet made a specific prophecy about, say, where the Christ was going to be born in Bethlehem, Jesus fulfilled that by being born in Bethlehem. Or if the prophet said the Christ would be born of a virgin, Jesus fulfilled that by being born of a virgin. But there's something deeper about the way Jesus fulfills the prophecies or the prophets. In Matthew 2, verse 15, as Jesus is led to Egypt to escape the clutches of Herod, it says that this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. On the surface, that wouldn't seem like a prophecy that Jesus would fulfill because that's referring to Israel being brought out of Egypt as a nation through the Red Sea. But now we come to realize that the way we're to understand the Old Testament is that the whole mood of it, the whole tenor of it, the whole story of it, is leading towards someone who is to come, who is going to reenact, in a sense, or relive or fully live out the whole of the Scriptures, so that Jesus, as the true Son of God, is brought to Egypt where He's going to be brought out again, and in doing so, He fulfills the imagery of the Old Testament. After Matthew relates the account of Jesus' birth, he introduces us to John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's like an Elijah. In fact, he dressed like him. And he was foretold in the Old Testament that he would be the one, it says in Matthew 3 verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Well, as the last of the Old Testament prophets comes on the scene. What is his ministry? 
It is to prepare for the one who's to come after him, for the Christ. And in a sense, he fulfills that which all the other prophets were to accomplish, preparing for the Christ, and he is the last of them. Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 13, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. There's no more need, in a sense, for their ongoing ministry because Jesus is the culmination of what they're prophesying about. After John comes on the scene, Jesus is baptized by him. In Matthew 3, verse 15, Jesus tells John why he must be baptized. And Jesus says, because it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. See, Jesus has on his mind this fulfillment mentality. He's there to accomplish the fullness of something, in this case, righteousness. Once he's baptized, he's led by the Spirit in chapter 4 into the wilderness to be tempted. And as he's led into the wilderness, we see that he's reliving, in a sense, a very similar trajectory to Israel when they experienced a testing in the wilderness as they're led to place without food and water. Now Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, and it also reminds us of the tempting that happened of Adam and Eve in the garden when Satan tempted them to disobey God. And there you recall that Adam and Eve disobeyed God, fell for the lies of Satan, but Jesus led into the wilderness where there is no food, no drink, is tempted by Satan, and overcomes him, showing that he's a new and better Adam. He succeeds where Adam and Eve failed. He succeeds where Israel failed. And in that sense, he is fulfilling his role. Matthew 1 through 4 has already set us up for this mentality to see Jesus as the fulfiller of the Old Testament. He's led us through his birth, his baptism, his temptation. And now, in chapter 5, after beginning his ministry, it says in chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. This should remind you of the trajectory of Israel. They're led out of Egypt, led through the water, led into the wilderness, and they're led to a mountain where God is going to descend on Sinai and give the law through Moses. And now Jesus, having gone through all of the initial steps of his ministry, heads up a mountain. And there he sits down and he preaches the most amazing sermon that's ever been preached. And do me a favor, if you've never read Matthew 5 through 7, after you go home today, when you get a moment... Get a Bible, open it up, and read from Matthew 5 through Matthew 7, the greatest sermon that you could ever read. It's no mistake that Jesus sits down on the mountain to give this sermon. It's been titled now, The Sermon on the Mount. And as he begins, he opens his mouth and teaches. And he teaches by beginning with blessings or the Beatitudes. Do you recall how things began at Sinai. God tells Moses, prepare the people for his coming on Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 19, 12, 
he instructs Moses that they shall, you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. That preceded the giving of the Ten Commandments. Don't get too close. Don't touch the mountain or else you're going to die. Jesus goes on the mountain. And he begins with blessings, with the Beatitudes. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. These are all ironic. They're not typically what you think of the people who are blessed. And yet the blessings that they are going to be given are as big as they get. The kingdom of heaven, comfort, the earth, satisfaction of righteousness, mercy, seeing God, being called sons of God, sharing the lineage with the prophets who came before. So as we kind of reflect on the trajectory of Jesus and the trajectory of Israel and Sinai, there are similarities. There are also differences. Something that's new, but it's in a way that is very consistent with what's already come to pass. And as Jesus goes on to preach, he touches on a number of topics. He addresses the very laws found in the Old Testament. He describes murder, but he doesn't just stay at murder. He dives into anger. He describes adultery, but not just adultery, but also lust. He talks about divorce and oaths and retribution and love. And then in chapter 12, he begins warning the people about how they practice their righteousness so that they wouldn't do it to be seen by others. And he warns them about how they are to give and how they are to pray and how they are to fast. And then in chapter 7, he warns the people about how to make judgments and not to do so when you have a log protruding from your own eye and trying to get the speck out of your brother's eye. Then he summarizes the law and the prophets in 7 verse 12 when he says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And after he's preached this amazing sermon, the people are amazed. In verse 28 of chapter 7, it says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he's teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. When Jesus taught in chapter 5, he had this refrain that he used. He said, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And then at the end of chapter 7 and verse 24, he divides people based on whether they do or don't do his words. Something you should never hear me say is, you have heard it said, but I say to you. I don't have that authority. I don't get to do that. I only get to say, thus says the Lord, and unpack what he has said. And if anybody ever tries to do that to you, to claim their own intrinsic authority, run away and stop up your ears. But he spoke as one who had authority. 
And his teaching as he taught was not just a reiteration of the law. He wasn't just explaining don't murder, but he applies an authoritative depth of meaning to it. And as he teaches about adultery, he's not just explaining adultery in the Ten Commandments. He's applying his own authoritative teaching to it when he says that looking with lust is committing adultery in the heart. His teaching on the law and the authority that he possessed is not just that he could explain the law really well. He alone had authority to teach this way. No one else ever taught like this man taught. Not Moses, not Isaiah, not Jeremiah, not Elijah. He drove it deeper, takes it further, makes it plainer. And as a matter of fact, as he comes to the end, he presents himself as the ultimate judge of what he just taught. And he will be the arbiter of whether you have kept his words or not kept his words. He says in Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He claims the role of the ultimate judge between those who will enter the kingdom and those who will be kept out. As you hear this authoritative teaching of Jesus, and as you watch his ministry, which is so filled with power, you may be prone to ask, what's his intention with the Old Testament? What's his intention with the law and with the Ten Commandments? The people who are hearing him might wonder, Is he just starting something completely brand new that has no relationship with what has come before? As if to alleviate our fears, Jesus speaks in Matthew 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Jesus explicitly states and wants his hearers to know that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's referring to the whole of Scripture, the law being the first five books of the Bible, the prophets being the rest of it, the rest of the Old Testament, the whole of Scripture. Jesus said he did not come to abolish them. What would it mean if he did come to abolish them? That would mean that he came to put an end to them, to make them invalid or ruin them. It would mean that they would come to nothing and they have no purpose that will be fulfilled and he has come to begin something completely and totally brand new that has no root in what has already passed. It would mean him saying that you can basically rip out the first 39 books of the Bible and throw them in the garbage, that they are irrelevant and unnecessary and has nothing to say to you at all, so that you could say to the Old Testament, I don't need that, and I could just toss it in the dumpster. There's a class that I took in the first semester of college. I don't even remember what class it was. 
because at the end of that class, I hated it so much that I took all of my notes from that class, and as soon as I was done with the final, I found the closest garbage can, and I put all of my notes in that garbage can. (laughs) Spent thousands of dollars on that class, and that's what I do with it. That's abolishing that class. It means it has no influence on my life whatsoever. Jesus says that he did not come to abolish the law. It's the same word that he uses in Matthew 24, verse 2, after the disciples have asked him about the temple. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. It's the same word. Just destroyed, abolished, no ongoing influence. Jesus did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. He did not come to say that the Ten Commandments don't matter, forget them, they're meaningless, pointless, and purposeless. He says rather that he came to fulfill them. He came to fulfill them. That's the same word that's already been used six times in Matthew, and it's going to be used seven times more following these chapters. And it's used with the same meaning. In the first part of Matthew, it meant that he is the fulfillment of those prophecies that expect his coming. He's the one to whom those passages are pointing When he says here that he comes to fulfill the law and the prophets, we have to understand that that word fulfill is a big word. It literally means to fill up, like you would fill up a container with something to the brim. And by definition then, it's a big word. It holds quite a bit, whatever you're filling that thing with. It's a pregnant in meaning. And he makes this huge statement That he came to fulfill them. He himself is the one who is going to accomplish their purposes. That's why he's come. In Matthew 26, during the events of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, Jesus describes what is happening when he says, All this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. He understood that he came to live his life in a way that would fulfill all that had been written. But how, we should ask, is the law, which told the people of Israel how to live, which told them what's right and what's wrong, how does he fulfill that? How does he fulfill a code that tells you how to live? Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This means that he is the completion of it. Like a runner running a race comes to the end of a race, comes to that finish line. He doesn't get rid of the race, but the finish line is the culmination of the race which he was running. Jesus does that with the law, not by abolishing it, but by crossing the finish line for its meaning and its purposes. And the purpose is for righteousness for everyone who believes. Let's think a little bit more about how Jesus 
fulfills the law. There are at least three ways, but again, this is a huge term, and there are probably other ways that you could put, put it. Let me give you three ways that he fulfills the law. He fulfills it through his complete obedience to it. He fulfills it by his deep and authoritative teaching of it. And he fulfills it by his completion of its meaning and purpose. Let me unpack those briefly. First, he fulfills the law in his obedience. Jesus kept the law perfectly. It says in Matthew 22, verse 37, as Jesus responds to the question, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And as you take those commands and you lay them over Jesus' life, you realize he kept those perfectly. He loved God perfectly, and he loved his neighbor perfectly. He fulfilled all righteousness. So he fulfilled it in obedience to it, unlike anyone else who had ever lived. Second, he fulfills it in his authoritative and deep teaching. As we've already seen, when he talks about murder, he takes it deeper and draws our attention to anger and tells us that if you are angry with your brother, you're equally liable to judgment as the one who murders his brother. Jesus also deepens adultery when he helps us understand that it's not just about the external act, but it makes you question what kind of attitude do you have in in your heart towards others. If you lust after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. In his authoritative teaching, he's able to say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And thirdly, he fulfills the law in his completion of its meaning and purpose. When you read past the Ten Commandments and you come upon the rest of the law, you read some of those strange remarks that talk about clean and unclean animals, about the sexual practices that were authorized or not authorized. You read about what the Israelites could wear or not wear. They couldn't wear blended garments. Read about the foods that were clean and unclean. They couldn't eat shellfish or pork. And for Israel, all of that had meaning. It was distinguishing them from the rest of the world as a people set apart. It was to show separateness. And when Jesus taught, he didn't really reiterate that you have to watch out that you don't eat shellfish. But he took that paradigm of clean and unclean, holy and unholy, and he reveals that that's not limited to externals only. As a matter of fact, it's not primarily about that. It was to reveal to those who would have ears to hear that clean and unclean, Holy and unholy isn't primarily about what you touch or what you wear, but what comes out of you from inside your heart. And so Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, verse 18, as he's debating with people who are upset that his disciples didn't wash their hands as they thought was ritualistic, Jesus says, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? 
since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. And then Mark puts this huge parenthetical statement when he says, thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus had that authority, but he goes on not to disregard the paradigm of clean and unclean. He goes on to take and apply it to your heart. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus fulfills that. He brings it to a completion, an appropriate application. He fulfills the sacrifices. When Jesus would think about the sacrifices, in no way would he say that those sacrificial texts about the lambs and the bulls and the goats and all of that blood don't matter, just disregard them. He would say it matters tremendously, but he fulfills them by being the sacrifice that actually takes away sins, the once-for-all atonement. When he talks, when he would talk about the priesthood, he wouldn't say that the priesthood laws don't matter, but we'd have to understand that he came to fulfill being the high priest that we needed. Jesus tells us why he fulfills the law. In Matthew 5.18, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus has to fulfill the law because it is the very word of God. And so he says that every last letter of it must be fulfilled, even to this, the tip of a letter. Why? Because the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And the Lord speaks in Isaiah 55 that anything that he sends out, all of his word does not return to him empty, but it shall accomplish that which he purposes. So Jesus can't abolish the law. He has to fulfill it because it is the very word of God. Then he warns that we can't abolish the law either. In verse 19 of chapter 5, he says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You can't untie the law by your own authority. He urges us to listen But I think as we are to listen to it, we have to listen to it through the lens that he's the one who fulfills it. We don't just stay in Exodus 20. We leap from Exodus 20 to what Jesus says to us in Matthew 5 through 7. So we don't relax the least of these laws. Further reason why we need the law as Jesus fulfills it is because Jesus says in verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus made that statement, his listeners' eyes probably would have popped out of their head. The Pharisees, the scribes, would have been regarded as the most righteous, the most fastidious law keepers of them all. They would have had 
display on display, the best clothing to wear, the best acts to do, the best prayers to offer for everybody to hear. Everybody knew when they were fasting. They were the elite, righteous law keepers of the day. And Jesus tells his audience, unless your righteousness exceeds them, you'll never enter the kingdom. That would lead to almost despair until you understand what Jesus thinks of their righteousness. Here's what he thinks of their righteousness. Matthew 15, verse 3, he tells them, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? He says in 16, verse 6, to the disciples to beware their leaven. That means their teaching. He says in 23, verse 4, that they practice but do not, or they preach but do not practice. In 23, verse 5, he says they do all their deeds to be seen by others. In 23, verse 23, he says that they tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. In 23, 25, he says that the inside of them are full of greed and self-indulgence. In 23, 28, he says that outwardly they appear righteous to others, but within you are all full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's what he thought of their righteousness because they came to the law with their own strength and intent on keeping it. And Jesus undoes, undoes that completely and shows that no one in their own strength can keep the law. And yet he still says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul a former Pharisee who was once regarded as blameless under the law, let go of all of his humanly earned righteousness in favor of gaining a righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. And so as we come to the law, we don't look at it through the lens of this is the righteousness that we need to earn we look at it through the lens of this needs to point us to the righteousness Christ has earned for us, and then we need to let him be our teacher and see how he transforms the very law that we come to study in the next couple of weeks. Jesus' fulfillment of the law points to the reality that in ourselves we have no righteousness of our own. That's why we need his fulfillment of it. Let me close with this. John Bunyan, who was uh, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, wrote a book about his own conversion, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And he describes how in his younger days he lived a life of radical licentiousness, just indulging in all kinds of sin and fleshly living. He came to a conviction about that, that he could not go on living that way, and he didn't want to be damned. And so he reformed his ways externally. And he says, I fell to some outward reformation, both in my words and life, and did set the commandments before me for my way to heaven, which commandments I also did strive to keep, and as I through did keep them pretty well sometimes, and then I should have comfort. Yet now and then should break one and so afflict my conscience, but then I should repent and say I was sorry for it 
and promise to God to do better next time and there get help again. For then I thought, I pleased God as well as any man in England. When he kept it on his own, he realized that he failed at times, but generally his good outweighed the bad. But as he reflects on that, he realized, for though as yet I was nothing but a poor painted hypocrite, yet I loved to be talked of as one that was truly godly. Christ's fulfillment of the law allows for none of that because it says that if you even look with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. And who can ever achieve that in their own strength? So as Jesus fulfills the law, it strips us of all legalistic self-righteousness and points us towards a need for a true righteousness that can be found in Christ alone. And the need for a heart that he alone can give. Like he says in John 3, you must be born again. The law will show that to you. And Jesus in his teaching will show you a better way, a way that leads you to the true depths of keeping God's law. I look forward to the coming weeks looking at the Ten Commandments with you, but we have to look at it while holding on to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, all of it, all of it's instructive to us, and we pray that as we look at your law, that you would accomplish all the purposes for which you have given it for us, and I pray that through it, you would enrich our love for Christ and our obedience to him. Father, we pray that you do a great work in each of our hearts, and Lord, this week, we pray that you would keep our eyes fixed on our Lord the one who has satisfied your justice, the one who's made atonement for our sins, the one who intercedes for us, the one who brings us to you. We thank you, Father, for the great grace and mercy that you've given us in Christ, and we pray in his name. Amen.